Hello, and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. Well, what better way to celebrate Halloween than with an ominous whoosh? Today's interview is full of lurking observers, purgative screams, and the evil men do. My guest today is the writer John Thorne, co-creator of the Twin Peaks magazine, Wrapped in Plastic, and author of The Essential Wrapped in Plastic. His latest book is called Ominous Whoosh, A Wandering Mind Returns to Twin Peaks, in which John presents his astonishing reading of the series Revival in 2017. As a longtime fan of the show, I loved this book and was delighted to get to speak to John more about his work, the challenges of writing about David Lynch, and about television in general, as well as the slippery literary side of Twin Peaks. So, um, I absolutely loved Ominous Whoosh, um, and uh, it's uh, for, for those listening, it's, a, it's an interpretive work on The Return. You um, present a very strong theory uh, for what is happening in The Return, but in the process you, you summarise the action of each episode, which in itself I found in- incredibly exciting, because the show's so huge, 18 hours, and so abstract that um, just seeing the action summarised before you even get into theory was, um, you know, qu- quite a thing to behold. Were there passages of writing Ominous Woosh where it almost felt like you were writing a novelization? <laughs> uh, you know, I tried not to do that. I was kind of aware of that. I didn't want to be depending solely on the Lynch and Frost you know, storyline to carry the book. I wanted to whenever I was describing something somehow related back to what my underlying thesis was, which was that, that we were seeing all of this through Dale Cooper's filter. And so um, I tried to be, keep that in the back of my mind all the time because I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't just want to rest on their work. I wanted to, move from their work but at the same time it was important to step everyone through every as much as i could that had that was happening on the screen so um you know they had they had the structure there that kind of made things a little bit easier for me because i knew what was coming next so yeah i i found it just because you know like i say it's so huge there's so many characters just just that to begin with to see it put into words, especially when, you know, you know, anyone who's familiar with Twin Peaks, familiar with David Lynch's work, uh, the return makes a kind of intuitive sense before it makes an intellectual sense. You sort of feel, you know, what's happening before you can c- c- kind of describe it. Seeing you lay out the all of the, um, you know, places and people in linguistic terms, you start making connections. And I found that really exciting. So starting to see, you know, rhyming names and, and uh, you know, locations that, a clues and that and that kind of thing was was there anything in particular you remember being surprised by as you put the action down and transformed it into words um well i was you know when you when you delve deep into something like that and you're watching it so closely you're watching it sometimes frame by frame almost although not you know not not all the time but scene by scene cut by cut you do start to notice things um I think the thing that surprised me because I didn't know going in, I didn't see the struct, the overall structure of the 18 hours until I started, 
I think I was like in part nine, I was getting to part nine of the return. And I realized that something significant had sort of concluded in part eight and that we were now essentially in the second act of uh, what I think, you know, the return. And I realized, oh, you know, I think it's broken up into three acts. I think the first act is part one through eight and the second act is part nine through uh, 15. And then the third act shorter is uh, part 16, 17 and 18. And I, I think knowing what I know of Mark Frost, who's a, who's, you know, a, a, a disciplined and talented writer, he probably was thinking in terms of breaking it up into acts. And it's not immediately apparent when you watch it, because you're watching it often over a long period of time to see that structure. So that surprised me. And it actually, it helped a lot because I understood a little bit about how the story was progressing a little better. Mm, it definitely made sense. I, I think especially when your second act, that nine to 15 part, the way you described mm. this sort of the arrestedness of that middle section. Um, sure. Characters who are stuck. I, that was, uh, that really brought me back to watching it the first time it came out, which, um, to my shame as a, as a Lynch fan, I had to watch on my phone due to streaming <laughs> complications and not having a TV, which Lynch wouldn't approve of, I'm sure. But um, no, that middle section really felt like, you know, what is everything's ground to a halt. What, 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 what's going on? Right. Yes. As I say, it's sort of a plateauing, like yeah. the story moves up and then it levels off. And it's interesting because that second act, uh, there's certain things that happen in the second act that only happen in the second act. We have all the roadhouse booth scenes, for example, these bizarre non sequitur or, you know, seemingly marginal uh, scenes uh, of characters we've never seen before speaking in this booth in the roadhouse. Uh, and then we have the, the FBI detectives who are all kind of stationed in that hotel in Buckhorn. And so, yeah, it's, um, and then, and then when the third act happens, we don't go back to the roadhouse, uh, not like we were anyway. And and the characters sort of break free a little bit. They begin to, to move forward again. So it made sense to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the title of the book is Ominous Woosh, as I said. It's got to be one of the best titles of, of, um, of books I've read recently. Um, the the Your little... Uh, a uh, quote for Act One is "Listen to the sounds," which is a line from the um, the fireman at the start of uh, of the return. Um, and you have this terrific uh, sort of avant-garde chapter, really, where you um, you collect some of the uh, subtitles, including "Ominous Whoosh," and uh, and list them together. It, it sort of looks like a kind of strange sort of tone poem, and like a poem, you can detect some kind of emotional sense out of it even though it's, you know, non-linear and, and it, sometimes it's a string of numbers and sometimes it's these repeated screamings and whooshings and <laughs> all of yeah. this. Um, what drew you in particular to the, the you know, the transcribed uh, subtitles? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I can actually um, tell you what the, the, the inspiration was. There was a book that came out on The Sopranos. I don't know how familiar you are with the television series The Sopranos. I don't want to ruin anything for you if you don't know how it ends. I've seen it through. I haven't read anything on The Sopranos, but I've seen it all, yeah. So there was a book that came out, and um, you know how the final episode ends. Well, in the book, 
when they get to describing the final episode, there's, I think, four or five just black pages. So you, you're suddenly flipping through black pages. And I thought that was a clever way of using the book form to convey the feeling of watching the show. And I thought, how can I convey the feeling of watching uh, the Twin Peaks, The Return in this book? And so uh, I, I, I deliberately positioned that section that you're talking about, which is primarily sound effects, but there's other uh, noise, uh, you know, what I call, I say noise, it's not literal noise, but it's visual noise, I guess, and license plate numbers and stuff that appears on telephones or, or um, uh, computer screens. And I put it right around part eight of the return because my experience of watching that part eight was one of bafflement and and surprise. And I thought if I could have someone turn a page and be somewhat unsure of what the book was doing, then at the very least I was conveying to them the feeling of that initial viewing of Twin Peaks that they would turn, you know, you turn that on and you don't know any more about where you are. And so that was sort of the, the, the base, base idea of putting that there like that. Now you're right. Um, uh, listen to the sounds and the, and the importance of sound in, uh, in Twin Peaks uh, was also on the back, in the back of my mind. I thought, yeah, you know, the sounds are important and let's sort of collect them all and try to get them in one place. Um, you're, you're the, I think you're the second person in the last month who has mentioned to me that it, it reads like a tone poem. And I, I, I'm glad it does. I, uh, I had I had someone tell me they've read it multiple times as if they're trying to extract some deeper meaning out of it. And it, I um, I think you can. Uh, but the intent was more of that sort of visceral. If you were confused, I felt like I succeeded. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that, mission that. accomplished. <laughs> I, I thought that was such a clever and. Um and funny way to, to communicate with the super fans who you know are going to who reach for your book. Because I think just from the title alone, people are going to recognize what that is in a very conspiratorial way because the Twin Peaks fans are going to have turned on the subtitles wondering if that's going to say owl or just scream or, you know, something like that. So, uh, you know, I, th I thought that was great. Yeah, I um, there are a couple of little tiny Easter eggs in that section that, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I, again, you're right. I think it was d d designed for the hardcore Twin Peaks fan. So, so yeah. Definitely, yeah. Um, so, it's, I know it's a bit of a large question, a bit of a leading question, but what makes the sound so important in The Return? And are they as important in previous seasons? Oh, that's a good question. I um, I can't really speak to the previous season. I have to look at the specific David Lynch episodes because I know for Lynch, sound is crucial. It's a crucial component of communicating to uh, the, the viewer sort of subtextually, almost, um, uh, you know, un subconsciously, some of what he wants them to feel. Um, and I know he does this for, for a fact. I know he does this in his films. And if you look at the credits in his films, he's, he's often listed as a sound designer and a sound editor. Sound is really important. 
So he's he's using that as as another way to communicate in addition to the visuals he's putting on the screen. Um, it, it Currently, I'm studying very, very deeply Mulholland Drive, uh, the David Lynch film Mulholland Drive, and I'm noticing how he employed sound to convey, I think, a particular meaning, uh, potential meaning of what's happening in Mulholland Drive. And uh, I think he does that. I think I'm for sure. I, I, those sounds that you hear seem random sometimes, but I think there's a deliberation to them. So for example, you have a scene where I think it's in part one or part two, where Ray Monroe is in the diner with Mr. C and they're, and they're with Daria and Jack and they're, and they're talking about Mr. C's plans. And at the very end of that scene, you hear a train in the distance. Now that was a sound effect that was added. Before that scene, we saw this train roar through, uh, you know, there was an actual visual of a train coming through. And I think Lynch is trying to convey some sense of maybe of power, of potential. Um, he does that again. He does that in other parts. And so I thought it was worth really paying attention to that and, and talking about it. It's so easy with sound to... Um, to just sort of overlook it or sort of passes by you and you don't really think about it. It, uh, it really is kind of subconscious. Um, but your question about the, the original series, I'd have to go back and look at the, the pilot. I know there's some interesting sounds in the pilot uh, and I certainly the last episode, I would I'd go back, but I haven't honestly studied it to, to the extent I probably should. <laughs> Because the reason I ask is that there's obviously quite a few sounds from the original series that are, like so much else in The Return, remixed, uh, uh, given um, a fresh depth or, you know, a, a new kind of meaning. Um, you know, f for example, Sarah uh, Palmer calling out Laura's name, which comes back right. in a really memorable way towards the end of The Return. I think you're onto something there. And I think, in fact, that's, I think that particular sound of Sarah calling Laura's name is also in Firewalk with Me. I think, I, I have to go back and look because there's the shots of the fan. Mm. That was certainly an important sound effect for Lynch. It's sort of a haunting sound, this idea, this echoing sound. The house has sort of contained this horror in it for so long. Um, I do think there were specific um motifs i guess from from that original from the pilot and then from firewalk with me that carried with them meaning and yes i do believe lynch knew that to use them again in the return would add that extra depth yeah i think it, it goes along with it i mean i've never watched a show that feels like it's uh, narrating its own effect and its own transmission quite as much as the return you know you yeah. you, you feel like you the experience of the you, you almost feel like the camera's on you watching it because you feel like the audience response is being coded into what's going on in in the film i truth to that i do and i write a little bit about that mm -hmm. but i do think that lynch is very aware of sort of involving the viewer and 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 sort of inviting the viewer viewer to make their own sense of of what he is putting out there. It's, extra so. it's extraordinary imagining him guessing what will be latched onto. You know, the, the, the confidence of doing that before you've done it, it just it seems amazing to me. I think it's somewhat instinctual with him. I think he if he finds it intriguing, 
He figures that other people may very well do so. And I think perhaps he's surprised sometimes too, though I doubt he pays a great deal of attention to, to how audiences are, are responding. But um, I'm sure there are aspects of it that he didn't you know, expect to, to catch on quite the way they have. So um, I, I, again, I think he, he has an instinct about him that, um, that he certainly trusts and it does connect. There's sort of that visceral connection between Lynch and the viewer and that's unique and it's valuable. It's, it's really a, a fascinating thing to, to experience. Definitely. Um, Lynch fans will be uh, aware of his many comments on the uh, untrustworthiness or slipperiness of language. He says it again and again in, in interviews. It, it crops up obviously in his work. There are so many scenes of failed communication, grotesque failures of communication from the alphabet up to the return. Um, and yet the more and more I look at Twin Peaks, the more literary it seems. Um, the, the, you know, the references to Arthurian literature, which I know we uh, messaged about briefly, but um, Kafka, who you write about um, mm. Uh, quite a bit in Ominous Whoosh. Um, there are the, the Four Quartets uh, by T.S. Eliot, which we also mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there are, seem to be a whole host of Shakespeare references um, in certain bits. And then there are, of course, the, the, the Vedic texts, which are so important to your theory, which we will we'll come to shortly. Um, as well as the show's own poems and puns and word games and, and, and all that kind of thing. Do you think Lynch has got um, more literary or has that always been there? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think um, I, I don't think there's a great deliberation on his part. Like I've got to incorporate this particular, you know, book that really um, stuck with me. I do think when it comes to Kafka, he has a long relationship with reading Kafka. If you read interviews with him, he read them when he was like in, in his college years and, and they, they, I think they influenced him. And he actually said in an interview that Kafka would, could be his brother, his, you know, almost be his brother. And, and Lynch did spend some time trying to adapt uh, the metamorphosis into a film. So I think those things resonate with him. And he wanted to, um, I don't think he wanted to literally try to adapt any of those aspects of it. I think he wanted to try to convey the same feeling he got from Kafka to, to the viewer, if he could, that that influence was there. Um, you know, he, he's kind of, I see more of the, the, the directors that, that he admires. Some of that influence gets a little, I, I think it's a little more obvious anyway, to me. Um, the literary stuff, I'd almost be more, I think, apt to uh, credit to, to Mark Frost. You know, I think uh, the Shakespeare stuff, maybe Mark Frost, certainly the Arthurian stuff. Uh, you know, I think that was intriguing to Frost. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes is Frost. And so, uh, you know, when you have the combination of the two creators, then you get this this sort of variety of influences coming in and 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 you know sort of organically coming together, and then it, you see it reflected in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, when when people talk about Twin Peaks, there is a tendency to immediately talk about just Lynch, and you're very careful in your book to stress the collaborative uh, nature of the whole series, principally with Mark Frost, his co-creator, but. 
also what um, directors and writers brought to the show and, and that kind of thing. Is it difficult when you're walking your readers through a theory to uh, identify the, the dyer's hand, as it were, for a particular moment um, and, you know, be able to describe who is responsible for that moment? Uh, you know, when I'm talking about, say, for example, the Twin Peaks The Return or Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, if I'm going to pull from the original Twin Peaks to find some evidence um, I want it to be a David Lynch directed episode if I can, because um, he just had less creative control over some of the other episodes. And I think some people are too quickly to assign some of things that happened, say, in the second season. Well, anywhere in this series where Lynch wasn't directly involved to Lynch. And I think unless we know he was behind the camera or writing, we have to be careful about that. Um and so, well, when it comes to Mark Frost, of course, I mean, Frost is a co-creator. I mean, there's no question. And Frost, uh, I, I feel a little more confident when I need to reference something, if, especially if I'm thinking about Frost, because I think his hands were a little more on the series, particularly in the first season, than Lynch's were. But um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I, I think it, it's a tricky thing. Let's put it that way. The original series is a tricky thing because there was a number of creative people involved. There were different directors. There were different writers. And, and Lynch is there hovering in the background all the time to some extent. But for me, um, if I need to kind of bolster a point or to reinforce something, if I can't find the Lynch directed episode to do it, then I might not try to make the argument. I certainly, I, I, in fact, I would not. I, I can't imagine trying to make an argument that Lynch is doing this or that and pull from a Tim Hunter directed episode or a Leslie Lincoln Gladder directed episode because, you know, ultimately they're the final filter that that story is going through. And, and, and it wasn't Lynch. Um, mm. Perhaps if he had been the writer of the episode, I, I, I give it a little more weight. But that I'm always careful about that because um, it's too easy to get, you know, off on all these different paths uh, that Lynch may not have really been involved with. Yeah, no, that that's that's the way it seemed to me, especially when, um, you know, it seems to be so much gray area when you hear interviews with actors he's worked with and the, the level of collaboration sometimes with them and the, the, them left to come up with things for their character and but they describe it almost as if they were channeling david lynch so it's yeah it, yeah. it, it felt like it must be difficult to like verify you know this this is a lynch thing this is a frost thing this is a you know well yeah and that you know i mean i i did some careful research on the twin peaks the return and i think it's fairly public knowledge that you know lynch and frost wrote the sort of core script together Frost admits that at a certain point he went off to write the books that he did and that um, David Lynch continued to work on the script. So, uh, and, you know, you can look at the, the Mark Frost book, uh, Conversations with Mark Frost, where he talks a little a bit about this. So uh, there are parts of it that I think are more Lynch than they are Lynch and Frost. Mm. And I also believe that when it comes to any kind of film or television, Again, that last filter that the, the story passes through is the director. I mean, I guess you could argue maybe it's the editor, but really is the director. <laughs> and, and so 
I will find myself assigning a little more meaning to Lynch, you know, Lynch's Lynch's deliberation here. Um, and I don't in any way want to try to dismiss Frost. I tried not to do that because I do believe he was a, you know, a very present creative uh, uh, storyteller in this uh, in this project. But ultimately, again, I mean, Lynch is on the set. He's got the camera and he's and then he's in the editing room and remixing the sound and all that. And yeah. so you can kind of weigh it a little more toward Lynch. I think Frost would acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the behind the scenes footage must have been very useful for that because th there's tons of it for, a, for starters, which seems a bit unusual for for the return. Um, uh, I, but but there's lots of moments where you uh, you know you see Lynch coming up with stuff that ended up in the in in the return and sort of see the organic forming of of moments. Yeah, those behind the scenes uh, documentaries that are on the uh, one of the home video releases. Mm -hmm. uh, those were great value to me. And I, I, you know, I wonder how we only got, they only showed us what they wanted to show us. I know there were scene stuff behind the scenes footage that they just are never going to show us because it would probably give you a little more, you know, a peek into what Lynch was doing. Um, I've talked to actors who have told me things about, you know, how Lynch, you know, works and, you know, none of that gets, gets put on to a documentary. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's surprising to some extent that Lynch would allow even that much to go out, but it, you know, he, he did on the Mulholland drive Blu-ray, I think that came out with uh, criterion. There was that hour or so sort of behind the scenes documentary, which um, it's totally surprised me that Lynch would, would agree to do that. And then they must have known when they were making the return, well, you know, we need to offer this for the, for the home video release to get people to buy it. I mean, it worked for me. <laughs> so, so they were giving us some extra content. So they were thinking in that way, this is something we're going to, we're going to capitalize on, but still some things sneak through in those, in those documentaries that I, I, you know, I would cling to because they did give you that little tiny, you know, opening, a little glimpse into maybe what Lynch's intent was. And um, so, yeah, they were interesting for sure. There was a there was a couple of moments in your book where I thought, oh, what, you know, something has slipped through there, uh, whether from, you know, the cast saying something. Uh, I don't want to give anything away for people who are going to read the book, but one moment where a cast member says what character she's playing turns out to be a bit of a coup um, for for your theory and, and for, you know, a, a widely adopted theory of, of, of who that character is in, in The Return. Um, you know, you're going to have to remind me. Okay, <laughs> it's the, um, it's young Sarah Palmer. Sarah Palmer. Uh, yeah, well... Well, there is some interesting behind the scenes, I don't even call it behind the scenes footage. People forget that there is this sort of Lynch directed short piece that uh, that is on, I think, the Missing Pieces disc or it's called A Twin Peaks Between Two Worlds, where David mm -hmm. Lynch is literally interviewing the characters and it's directed by Lynch. And so to me, it's legitimate. This is valuable information for, um, uh, you know, for getting into what the character might be doing. But I, I also know what else you're talking about too with, with the Sarah Palmer character. And uh, 
Yeah, and 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 that was one of the instances where I think Frost and Lynch might have had a little bit of a disagreement, and ultimately Lynch, you know, kind of put forth what he wanted to do with that. Mm. It's not speculating there. I can't say for sure. No. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, speaking to members of the cast. Um, have you, uh, obviously Lynch is, as, as you've said, very famously tight-lipped about interpretations, seems to sort of benevolently encourage it, but go and do it in your own time and don't ask me anything sort of attitude towards, towards people coming up with interpretations. Have you... Um, when you've spoken to cast or other other creative people involved in the production, ever sort of floated theories to people who are involved in the making of the show and seen how they go go down? Um, not really. I mean, I guess in in, in the early days, uh, and I, I say this before the return because we did. You know, I I'm not sure if you're listeners are aware i did a magazine called wrapped in plastic for about 13 years this was in the 90s when twin, twin peaks was still very fresh in many people's minds and we had but it, we we were certain i think at the time that it was never coming back and a lot of the cast at that time was pretty open about what they thought about m- meaning in the show what they thought about the production of the show you know they uh, uh, and so they didn't think it was ever going to come back. And um, it was just a historical event that they could comment on. Um, but what, what happened after the return is that I think most, if not all the cast members have signed an NDA in which they say, you know, and I've heard them, I've heard them say it out loud at various shows that, you know, we can't talk, we just can't talk. And, and, um, and so they will not. And so um, I don't, because of that, I rarely ask them um, much about what they thought. I, I try to ask, when I speak to cast members, I try to think about their experiences of being on the set and being working with Lynch and then maybe derive from some of their answers, I'll, you know, get a, some sense of maybe what Lynch was trying to get at. But, you know, that's like far five steps removed. And so yeah. you have to be kind of careful with that but um you know if you listen to this behind the scenes documentary you do get every once in a while somebody in the background will slip and say something you know and i don't know if they even knew it got through so um you take what you can get (laughs) well it it must be with a show that size it must be hard to just keep track of what's a secret after a while You, you know it's amazing to me that they were able to uh to to keep a lid on such a vast production. There's, there's 200, I think there's 200 speaking parts in the return. And yeah. um, I saw somebody post the other day on, on a social media platform, uh, one of the actors said that when they were on set, they weren't allowed to bring their phones. Mm. They had no photos of their experience. Um, and, you know, in fact, when I went to Twin Peaks, the, to the return, I went to the premiere. I was very lucky to go to see that in Los Angeles. Uh, Mark Frost was very kind to invite me and I went, um, but they, they had a no phones policy there too. You, you know, you, they wanted your phones off uh, when you walked into that. And, and that was only two days before it was going to show on, on television. So um, the only person who had a phone out was Kyle McLaughlin. He was recording, he was recording everything. I think he probably figured, what are they going to do to me? But, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, you know, they, they, they truly did uh, keep everything secret. And I think they really kind of hammered that home to people, you know, we want to keep the mystery of this alive as much as possible. So you rarely hear them 
talk about it and you don't see much behind this unless it's authorized you know yeah. it's hard to get get that glimpse yeah so so the the theories you put well the theory you put forth in ominous whoosh centers on the role of cooper uh Cam McLaughlin's character and laura palmer let's um let, if we talk about cooper first um you present a really like a thrilling sort of vision of the return as not a dream, not kind of a waking dream, objective reality, but a sort of mediated through um, the psyche of Cooper. What first sort of gave you an inkling that that was the case? Well, I think um, the, the part 17 where Cooper's face appears, uh, you know, for people who, who are familiar with this scene, or if they're not, I'll describe it very briefly. There's a scene at the end of, or in the middle of part 17 where all the characters are assembled in, in Frank Truman's office and something odd seems to happen. And then Cooper's face is superimposed over the action. So he's sort of on the screen None of the characters in the in the in the actual story on this, you know, uh, in the office are aware of this face. Only the audience is aware of this face. And and he speaks to the audience and he says, we live inside a dream. And so that was a deliberate. I mean, that was clearly deliberate on Lynch's part. He was trying to signal something to us. Now, I don't say I can't say for sure I know what he did, but I know he was signaling something. So I tried to come up with an idea. What was he signaling to us? You know, what was he trying? Why do that? There was a reason. So why do that? And 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 then I got into thinking about some of these odd things that happened in the story that could easily be explained as, well, it was all a dream. You know, it's just it's it doesn't make sense. Well, the dream doesn't always make sense. So we can throw some, you know, we can just sort of excuse it. I didn't want to do that because. I felt like Lynch and Frost and all the actors and all the fans were invested in some of these characters that they felt that they had their own autonomy to them. And so if you dismiss the entire story as a dream, then I think you reduce the impact of, say, the death of the log lady or the reunion, finally, of uh, a Big Ed and Norma. And, and some of the other things that happen. And so I didn't want to fall back on the dream theory. And yet there was a subjectivity to this story. There was something that didn't quite make sense in a normal way. And so, so that was, so my effort there was, and, and Lynch has said, Lynch has said in interviews. So that was another key component of my theory Lynch has said the world, well, he's quoting the Maharishi, the world is as you are. This idea that every one of us sees our own unique world. And so if, you know, you and I were to witness, a, say, a car accident or something like that, you know, we would both get most of the details right if we were to describe it to a third person. But there would be something about your version that would differ from mine. And and so, and it was, you know, that's the way you remember it. That's just li literally your you saw it in a different way than I did. And so I think Lynch was trying, I believe Lynch was trying to um, convey some of that. And, and so that what we were seeing happen on the screen in the Twin Peaks, the return was not a dream, but a skewed version. We were seeing what Dale Cooper was seeing. 
And that kind of explains why the face appeared uh, the way it does. And so, so it wasn't always reliable, but it told us something subtextually. It told us something about the mind that was processing the story. And so in a way we got closer to that character of Dale Cooper, whom I think for Lynch in this story was the main character. This was his story. And so he's trying to convey to us the troubled mind of Dale Cooper, the confusion of Dale Cooper, without literally showing us some external action that's confusing him. We're having to derive that confusion by the way he's processing the story we're watching. It's complicated, I admit, but I think for me anyway, it helped the show it made the show more com comfortable for me. It made, it made it more valuable to me. I think it, it, it expanded the show in many ways for me. It also made it make a sort of sense that uh, I was comfortable with. I, I agree. I, th I think it's, I think it's completely compelling and it, it elegant and also um, quite funny to reflect on. I mean, I, I loved the return. I was mm -hmm. like, perturbed by a lot of it the first time around but couldn't wait to rewatch it i think most people would most people were perturbed by some things that happened in the return but one of the things that i was i was kind of laughing at reading your book was remembering how many people when the return was first on were saying over and over again where is dale cooper when is he going to come back when are we going to see dale cooper and right. as your theory puts forward he's he's kind of he's more there than any of the other characters all the way through <laughs> That's exactly right. I, I, thank you for, I'm glad you, <laughs> that came through to you because I do believe that Cooper is there almost throughout, uh, maybe not in part eight as much, or mm -hmm. some of the black and whites are sort of outside of his, his um, perception. But I do think in a way, uh, Lynch and, and Frost too, gave us Dale Cooper. He just didn't appear on screen. He was between the screen and us. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a strange way to think about it. But again, I think it works. Uh, for me, it works. Since he is the one who has been arrested, we all know, knew as, as Twin Peaks fans, I mean, I, I wasn't old enough to watch it when it was first broadcast, but as, as anyone who's watched series one and two before the return came out, he's the character we know is stuck. He's the character who will most want to return in the way that we do when we finally watch the return. So it makes yes. perfect sense for him to be the sort of the surrogate audience and really willing himself back in the same way that the audience was. Yes. Yeah. I think that's that good way of looking at it. <laughs> um, I thought it was funny as well, because the, the, there's so much talk about whether or not the past dictates the future and, and how the, the new series uh, um, changes the old. Um and and we see that literally happening towards the climax of the return. Um, your theory of uh, the the return being this mediated narrative, this subjective, subject slightly subjective reality from from Cooper. Um, you would never need to ask this before about season one and two, but do you consider season one and two unmediated, or is it, you know? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I don't. That's uh, a really good question because. Um... Well, you know, you got to remember, too, there were a lot of creators involved. So, I mean, then mm. you, you get in that, which intent behind, you know, the author's intent behind what we're seeing. When you have so many people working on it, um, it's hard to pinpoint it. 
you know, like that. Um, um, I think maybe in the last episode, I think, I think, uh, I think Lynch came in and we know, you know, it's documented that Lynch came in and basically threw the script away that the original script for the final episode and rewrote it. And I think you could make an argument that he, there might be a mediating presence there in that episode. Um, Lynch is always interested in the interiority of his characters. I mean, if you look at any of his films, even the ones like that seem, you know, um, obviously overtly, you know, uh, on the surface, which is somewhat diminishing them, but like the straight story is a great example. Mm -hmm. The straight story looks like we're seeing a story. We are seeing a story of a man who's traveling to find his brother, but there's a lot of interiority that's being conveyed. A lot of the things that happen in the straight story um, could possibly be Alvin Strait's perception of what happened and not necessarily literally what happened. So I think that Lynch likes that. And I think he's done that over and over again in his films. Um, um, so, I mean, going back to season one and two, you know, I think, I think Lynch and Frost had a, had a different, had a different mindset when they were making that than they did when they were making the return. And so, I'd be careful to, you know, get too overarching a theory on on how it really was sort of a conference call show. <laughs> There's a lot of people involved in that. So, so, but but we're thinking about for sure. We're thinking about does Lynch want us to think about it that way now, even if it wasn't intended that way originally? Quite possible. It's sort of it's sort of irresistible, and 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 there are there 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 are moments where we got. We're clearly seeing one person's version of reality, you know, Sarah Palmer seeing visions in her living room, for that kind of thing. Um, we're aware that not everyone in the room isn't seeing that. Yeah, I mean, definitely when we get to scenes like that, there are other scenes for sure in the region. I mean, you know, we think about Josie's face in the drawer pull. Who was seeing that? No one ever acknowledges that that happened. The only people who saw that were the audience. Uh, and so I don't know if they were going to have some revelation later on down that the show continued that you know, someone actually there's there's a hint that maybe Pete was aware that Josie was haunting, you know, the Great Northern. But so there are fascinating parts of the original series that you've got to wonder about who is essentially, you know, the focalizer, who is seeing it sometimes it's no one but us. And so it's gets, it gets into that fascinating area of trying to derive some objective truth out of it when so much of it is subjective. Absolutely. And it's, it's intensified in the return. You, you talk about, I think early on in the book, you talk about the proliferation of characters who seem to be just there to watch. And it's, it's another thing that makes you very self-conscious as an audience member, because they don't do anything other than watch some of them. Um, yeah, I mean, and Lynch has done this in other works. He did it in Firewalk with Me. Um, but uh, yeah, there are some fascinating characters. Uh, I'm thinking of the two sort of misshapen figures in the dark at Beulah's. This is in part one. There's this odd couple of, of characters. Um, I had a chance to talk to George Griffith about that. Uh, he plays Ray. Um, and I can't really, you know, relate his story. He's the one who would have to relate it, but it must have been interesting to be on that set because I don't think that was initially planned, but it, it came sort of as a last minute thing that these characters were going to be there. But but they 
but they do represent that idea that there are forces or consciousnesses that are uh, that are observing that are sort of there and what do they represent are they are they stand-ins for us the audience are they some sort of reference that maybe there are higher powers or uh, uh, layers of, of of reality and then there's someone who is manipulating what's happening on this plane of existence all of that is legitimate all of that's worth thinking about lynch doesn't in any way direct us to one or the other he just puts it there to give it that ambiance to give it that you know that potential and and that's what makes it so incredible i love the stuff like that me too yeah definitely um we, we mentioned part eight just briefly there uh, it's one of the episodes that's particularly uh, thrilling to see you put into words because it is a you know, wordless for for a, a, a large section, um, and you know the depiction of the Trinity test, where what we're seeing, you know, we're talking about different audience members. It's almost guaranteed that different audience members are going to come away with a different interpretation of what they've just seen in in that particular uh, sequence. We might appear to see that the the, tri the Trinity test coincides with the the canonical Twin Peaks version of the birth of evil. That mm -hmm. seems to be being presented but as you point out in ominous whoosh it doesn't really fit with what we know of twin peaks we have a reference in the original series about the uh the woods around twin peaks are full of an, an ancient evil um right. and it feels like that means more ancient than 1945 so um i wanted to ask you how you how do you read that that sequence as uh, you know bob's arrival is, is is this more like a revival of bob or is bob you know maybe not the all-encompassing evil that we maybe thought he was in the original series i a good question and boy did i give that a lot of thought and in, in one point i thought that bob was traveling back in time you know <laughs> uh and of course time is kind of um uh, malleable in the twin peaks universe but um I think for me, what I settled on and what made sense to me, um, particularly when you start thinking about it in terms of some of those Hindu, you know, beliefs, is that it was a cycle, that there's a cycle of things that happened, that Bob escapes from time to time. He, he's done this throughout history or, or an evil. We, we don't have to call it Bob. It's personified as Bob in Twin Peaks, but it might be other things that... Um, this evil gets loose into the world and then there are systems in place that sort of return it to captivity or or at least um ameliorate you know the evil or however you want to describe it i'm trying to be as general as i can here um and that uh at a certain point a crisis moment happens and so the release of the potential of nuclear <laughs> devastation in the world is one of those moments where this release of Bob, this time, it's more dire than it's ever been before. And so uh, and so that's part of what, why the fireman responds the way he does, why he creates Laura Palmer. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, what I, I think for me, I was very comfortable tying it into some of the Hindu beliefs of uh, cycles of ages. And knowing what I know from what Lynch has described in interviews, that's a really influential and important, you know, part of his worldview. And so I felt that he was conveying aspects of it 
through the mythology of Twin Peaks. And it fit really nicely for me. I was very comfortable with that. <laughs> so I thought so too, because I, you know, you, you said the, the, the whole point about it being cycles that seemed to, you know, not just work in terms of what we're literally seeing, but even the, the, the presentation of it, the style of it, seeing the, um, you know, it's that it's that composited old footage of Bob. They haven't tried to make a new image of him. They haven't tried to make a uh, you know, a baby Bob or a Bob and an egg or something. And likewise, the image of Laura that gets sent is you know the famous iconic picture of yes. her. So it is like an icon, um, not yeah. You know, th this is the start of her journey. Or is almost like this is the signifier of Laura. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I did think about that too. So, you know, if if the fireman is putting Laura onto Earth, I, I you know, if you take it very literally, you know, then why is she appearing in that orb as her homecoming photo? You know, it's like, well, because it symbolizes Laura Palmer. I think you're on to, to something there. You know, it, it, this is the idea of Laura Palmer, not necessarily literally Laura Palmer. Yeah, um, that she is her own being. I think that's important to acknowledge, but that she also has an, perhaps another identity that's extremely important into the larger cosmological, you know, uh, universe of Twin Peaks. So yeah. it's a little, it gets a little, um, well, I won't say confusing. I don't think it's confusing actually, but it, it, it abstract, it gets a little abstract. <clears throat> Very abstract. And we're, we're, we're talking now about sort of aspects of the original series that do seem to have evolved in the, um, in imagery from the original series and characters from the original series that have evolved in meaning in the time the, the in the, in the hiatus between the shows um your theory of, of cooper kind of implies a, a criticism of him for assuming that the past dictates the future assuming that he is the the hero uh, uh you know assuming that he, he will ha assume a kind of godlike providence over the narrative um which he so appears to fail to do um I just thought I, what's one thing I kind of wanted to ask you about was that I thought that attitude reflects in a really sort of amusing way Lynch's own uh, working processes of you know d doing what we've, ju we've just described that uh, reconfiguring things a little bit not letting things lie so things like uh, you know Ju the transformation of Judy from the from the thing the monkey says to what what Judy is in Fire Walk with me and what Judy is in the return uh, the white horse that appears to Sarah Palmer, which seems like something quite different in the return from the original series. You, you mentioned the the harmonics that Lynch describes of, of of ideas. As long as the harmonics are okay, you should be you should be all right when you return to these. He has such a confidence in these old ideas. Yeah, and I think he's not afraid to re reinterpret necessarily or expand upon them. I mean, I'm, you know, one of the things that's still, I think, one of the biggest biggest issues of debate in the Twin Peaks narrative is the ending of Firewalk with Me, which has Laura Palmer appear uh, in the Red Room with Dale Cooper after she has been killed and she sees an angel. And it's it's a very happy moment for her. You could argue whether it's a happy ending or not. And some people say it's the happy ending and some people say that she at least finds some peace. And I, for a long time, did not want to... Um, to counter that, I felt that was, I felt, you know, that that felt right to something. That was the true ending. That's the true ending. Even after all of Twin Peaks The Return, this end of Firewalk of Me is the true ending. But then I 
thought, you know, as given what some of what Lynch said in that Between Two Worlds section, where we actually have Laura Palmer, apparently, and this is Lynch dialogue, talk about what happened to her after death. And then Lynch himself in an interview talking about that ending and using that phrase you just said, harmonics, the idea that it it kind of resonated for him in a different way. And so for me, I came to feel quite comfortable that that is not the true narrative ending of Twin Peaks, that that was a transitional point, that that was a point for Laura to become perhaps more aware of the larger universe and become something else more than a human being. We could get into actual literal detail or we could leave it that way. I'm fine either way. But um, I think Lynch was quite open to the idea that if he's coming back to a work after 25 years, that he's a different person. You know, Mark Frost has said, you know, we are different people than we were when we made the show in, in 1990. And so we have a different sensibility. We have a different worldview, maybe, or our, we, we've, we've um, um, evolved to some extent. And they go back to that work and they want to bring some of that new way of thinking. The, the show um, sort of implicitly conveys the idea that we are different people as time or we, we, we should be different people as time goes along. We shouldn't be stuck in the person we were 25 years ago because because then we aren't really experiencing life. And I think that's implicit in the story, the idea of being sort of trapped or stuck or, you know, locked into the past and um, kind of going off in different tangents here. I'll try to tie it together. I think for Lynch and Frost both, when they came back to the work, they wanted to sort of revitalize it with some new ideas and they weren't afraid to necessarily contradict what, might I mean the show is so open anyway it's kind of hard to say well you changed it but but be open to allowing it to go into different directions and I do think that Lynch did that with some of what seems to be the uh, agreed upon you know facts quote unquote of the original series they became they changed they evolved into something else and he was he was fine with that I don't think he minded doing that at all no <laughs> so, no. Plus, if it is a mediated narrative, then, uh, you know, so much the better. You, you, you remember things wrong, as you were saying, as you were saying earlier. You, you remember things differently. Absolutely. And I mean, Lynch has said that in interviews. He's literally talked about memory and talked about how people remember things differently. And, and I think that's that's there in Twin Peaks as well. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit. I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the very start of the series, the experiment appearing in the glass box. And and then bursting out in this outburst of violence, and it, it's like a, a chaos has been unleashed on the world. Um, I wonder if you thought that uh, the, the, that parallels not just uh, Cooper in the mirror, you know, smashing the mirror up and releasing that evil and chaos, the bad Mister C, bad Coop, um, but also the the start of Fire Walk with Me. I know the TV exploding is as commonly been read as David Lynch sort of putting two fingers up to the uh, the way he was treated on the show. But it, it does also, with, with this new glass box exploding at the start of the return, it does also feel like, well, they all kind of start the same way with this sort of, uh, you know, forget that, now something else has sprung new. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. I've heard people discuss that. I, I didn't really get into that idea. I mean, I could have, and and I don't, you know, I don't disagree with the idea that there may be some symbolism there. 
Uh, certainly, the beginning of Firewalk with Me is pretty overt. There, you know, there's a lead pipe getting smashed into a television, <laughs> which is just, well, not necessarily that uh, you know television's bad, uh, but that this isn't te- that Firewalk with Me is no longer television. That this mm. is going different medium, and we, because it's a different medium, we can do different things, and they certainly did. Um, but you know, the idea of things exploding or things being released, the energy release is something that Lynch has used in various films and other works. And this idea that something builds and then it releases and that release changes the narrative. It changes, you know, something new is now going to happen. Something new is in the world. We all have to contend with it. Whether it's, you know, an evil thing, when again, kind of get down to that good versus evil or whether it's just conditions, conditions have changed. We have to adapt. And so, Mm. um, he's used that that imagery before things kind of building and then breaking free and um i'm sure on a on a you know an intuitive level he's trying to convey that to the audience you know an energy release now we're moving forward from that well the the series ends with an energy release as well which you um i think forms the sort of climax of the second part of your theory um uh, who is Laura Palmer and, and what, what's her role in all this? Could you, um, I know we're, I'm, I'm getting you to describe hin- hin- the, the Hindu side of the theory all at once, but could you, could you describe your conception of Laura Palmer in The Return? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, I'll just give a little backstory as like get back to part eight. You know, I, I, you know, for someone who's watched Twin Peaks as long as I have, I watched it when it first aired on, in 1990 and, wrote about it for you know decades and so part eight comes along and all of a sudden <laughs> i am forced to reconceptualize laura palmer i mean it, it was pretty obvious that there was something going on there that we had to make sense of um it, the scene i'm referring to is that the fireman who seems to be a godlike being um creates essentially laura palmer and i mean you know, if you look at the imagery that Lynch is using and you try to read it literally, he imagines Laura Palmer creates her and then the, uh, he and his wife. So te- technically, in a way, they're they're the parents of Laura Palmer. I say wife, senior Dito, Dito is his companion and they send Laura Palmer to Earth. And, you know, I'm trying to make some sense of. Well, how do I how do I reconceptualize Laura Palmer? Because. This, this is hard to, to fit with what Fire Walk With Me showed us and certainly the original series. Um, and so, I mean, in spending a lot of time with it and especially paying attention to the log lady's dialogue where she, you know, she says Laura is the one, that's a crucial sort of core line of the, of the story. Laura is the one. Well, what is Laura? What The one what? Um, and so, you know, over time, I, I schooled myself a little bit on Hindu theology. And I will say up front, I am not an expert by any means. I don't know a lot about it. Um, I've been taken to task on some reviews that I got my knowledge of, of Hindu theology from a book called Hinduism for Dummies. But you got to start somewhere. And, um, and it wasn't the only book I used. I, I, read, I read a lot of the, the actual texts, um, you know, the... Um, various um, Bhagavad Gita and, and the, and some of the others, but, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm bogging down here and I don't mean to. So what I found was what looked like 
a parallel in the log lady's dialogue with some of the philosophy of Hindu belief. And then, of course, Lynch in interviews has literally said, we are in a cycle of four ages. And in the end of the fourth age, which is a dark age, the cycle will end and it will begin again. And according to Hindu belief, there is a godlike figure called Kalk, uh, um, Vishnu. And Vishnu, over the course of these these cycles of ages, he sends avatars to earth to help mankind with various crises. The last avatar is the 10th avatar. The 10th avatar of Vishnu is named Kalki. Kalki rides a white horse and Kalki descends to earth at a moment of sort of existential crisis, that this is essentially the end of the dark age. And Kalki's purpose is to restart the ages, to end the dark age and begin the ages. You know, so we would we would start again in a golden age. Well, all that symbolism is there in the return. All of that, the, the 10, uh, the number 10 is referenced over and over again in the return as something that occurs time and time again. There's your cycle. And that 10 is the moment of completion. There's your end of the cycle. Laura is the one, um, is the title of the 10th part of the, of the return. And so it just suddenly made sense to me that if the fireman is Vishnu and he sees this atomic test and the release of Bob and this crisis is essentially the dark age, then he has to send, send Kalki to Earth to end that dark age. And that seems to be Laura's role. For me, Laura... Uh, screams at the end of part 18 everything goes dark so that would be the end of the dark age and now lynch leaves us there he doesn't show us the golden age that may have been a bit more optimistic but he has said in an interview you know we can't go there we are in the dark age we are you know that's where we are and so um it just fit for me. It felt comfortable for me. Um, there was a lot of evidence in the 18 hours to support this. There was evidence in Lynch's interviews to support this. And so uh, that's the theory I propose in the book, that Laura Palmer is now essentially an agent of the fireman. If you want to use the Hindu terms, I don't think Lynch wants to use them, but I think he's modeling the story on on the Hindu theology. So Laura is Kalki. She's been sent to earth. Her mission is to end the dark age. And that's what happens. And Dale Cooper's mission is to deliver Kalki to that particular point in time and space so that she can fulfill that mission. And Cooper sort of gets in the way of himself. He thinks he can do things that maybe he should or could, or but he really shouldn't or couldn't do. And finally, he essentially acquiesces <laughs> and or is not even aware himself that he needs to deliver Laura. That's all he needed to do. And that's why he's left somewhat confused at the end, because he just can't see the larger picture. And, um, and so he delivers Laura to that particular moment. She screams the end. And I want to think optimistically that a golden age will 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 come after that. <laughs> So anyway, that's a long, somewhat long uh, version of uh, 
hopefully detailed enough to make sense uh my theory of what what's happening in the show brilliantly done that yeah i i i go along with that completely i think it i think it fits i think it's so so uh it explains a lot of the uh, just emotional resonances as well as the plot points i mean I, I remember noticing certain numbers the first time and not knowing what on earth to make of them but but almost apply maybe i'd watched a bit too much like Kubrick stuff and got a slightly obsessed with numerology but I, I noticed we, we were being deliberately shown certain numbers over and over again and there was I, I didn't know what to make of them watching the return the first time but I knew it was deliberate I knew it wasn't just like this yeah. is a random amount of tens um a lot of sevens too which I think for Lynch is a lucky number or uh you know anyway but yeah, yeah. Lynch believes in some of the numerology or he sees meaning in certain numbers and so seven for him is an important number but ten Without a doubt. And then, you know, you talked about the behind the scenes footage. He is, he's actually talking to Laura Dern about the number 10 and she says the number of completion and he, he's delighted. And then she says, well, I work for David Lynch as if, of course, I know that you exude that, you know? Yeah. And so it's more evidence to support the theory. Yeah. I was wondering, reading your book and, um, you know, you, you, you stressed the, what you just said there that, that Cooper is the mode of delivery he's that he's there his job is to get Laura there um were you given all of the uh, chess imagery in earlier series um Cooper as the handsome secret agent the white knight were you tempted to imagine Cooper as the white horse that delivers Kalki uh that's really interesting I had not thought of that you're introducing a new idea to me, and I and I'm interested in it. I don't know. I have to think about it. The, the possibility that he could be a white knight on a knight would ride a horse. So, um, boy, that that works. <laughs> you know, kind of fits in there nicely. I had not considered it, but I do think there's value in that in that way of looking at it. I guess I went with Cooper. You know, if you some, you know, if you look at some of the Hindu. Um, texts uh i know and again i'm not an expert but i know that there is some belief that um buddha is the ninth avatar of uh vishnu that buddha was sent to sort of pave the prepare the world for kalki uh you know i don't want to get too literal with the twin peaks but you know Cooper is a Buddhist character, especially in the original series. And um, Lynch introduced the idea of Buddhism in that second or you call it third, depending on the rock throwing episode where Lucy, uh, where Cooper talks about the, t the plight of the Tibetan people. And and um, and so you could make an argument. I do a little bit that that Cooper occupies this role of the ninth avatar. There's no evidence in the show anywhere that I can find that uh, well, other than the opening scene of uh, of the return where he is face to face with the fireman and the fireman is essentially sending him on a mission. And so you could argue that the fireman has sent Cooper first. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, um, but the idea that he's connected to Kalki in that way is is uh, equally fascinating. I think so. We're thinking about yeah, that. That you've 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 answered the question I was going to ask next, which is: Do you think we have any hint of the other nine avatars? Do you think they're seeded throughout the, throughout the law? But yeah, yeah, you're right. The, um... Yeah, I, I think Cooper's the only one you could. I don't. I mean, you could potentially go and look at some of the others. Um, 
the again, again, and I'm not an expert. I want to keep emphasizing I'm not an expert. I, from what I have read, you know, the various avatars, the, the crises that the avatars have to deal with are they, they are um, they get more dire, I think, as time goes along. So uh, any crises that someone before Cooper it wouldn't quite be as existential maybe as what Cooper and Laura have to deal with. So, um, but, you know, you, when you mentioned Cooper is the white horse, you know, I think it's important always to mention when you're talking about Twin Peaks, particularly Twin Peaks, the return, the two most crucial characters are without a doubt, Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer. And so we have all these other characters, which are fascinating. They all have great value to them. They all some more important than others, but I think if we we if we if we focus on those two characters and their relationship over the time, uh, that's the story I think at the core of Twin Peaks, and it, and it carries through to the end. Even if Cooper himself isn't necessarily aware of it, his connection to Laura Palmer is vital. Mm, yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. I know, I know some people's reaction to the return, seeing Laura Palmer apparently sent down from above to be um, sacrificed in some people's view, uh, you know, put them off the idea that she, you know, was sent to counteract an evil, but is it, but is a victim. I think it makes a lot more sense imagining her as, uh, as an avatar, you know, as a, as, as this sort of, um, and especially in, in return where we see other, other kinds of avatar, perhaps less pure forms of avatar that, you know, in the, in the tulpas. Um, oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense for, for it, you know, because you, you could look at it one way and go, the, the fireman is definitely sacrificing quite a few people on his his, his, his quest for to uh, counteract evil. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that that scene in part eight where the fireman sends Laura down, I think a lot of people independently, I was one of them, you know, uh, sort of jumped to a conclusion that, oh, Laura has been sent down to combat Bob because we know the history. Bob right. is going to go after her. But, you know, it, she never combats Bob. I mean, she doesn't combat Bob and fire walk with me. She resists Bob, which is important. But she's never, ever, if her mission was to stop Bob, she failed. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't stop Bob. Bob is actually just a symptom. He, he's not really what she's trying to fix. Hmm. Uh, she's trying to stop. The, the dark age, or not, I shouldn't say stop. She's trying to, you know, end the dark age and restart the cycle of ages. It's a much bigger, more important, you know, philosophical idea than just the simple, oh, he's evil and I'm going to stop him. Um, and I would argue, and I think I do in the book a little bit, you can't stop evil. You, you cannot do away with evil. Evil will always be there. We're dealing with, I mean, you know, in the real world right now, we're dealing with some terrible e evil things. It's always going to be there. And so, um, you know, I think I think it's naive of us to look at a story and say, oh, they're going to stop the evil. Well, what happens after that? I mean, you know, evil is intrinsic. It's there. So how we deal with evil, that's the story. How do, how do we contain it? How do we keep it from becoming you know more violent and more and more threatening that's the story so yeah. anyway that 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 attitude seems to be articulated in the in the scene with where with cooper's superimposed face the fight with bob that feels like a um you know almost a sardonic commentary on what a killing evil looks like 
um, to people who think they can. You know, the, the fight with Bob as a, in his uh, pellet or in his <laughs> egg sack and being punched by Freddy. Yeah, you know, and, and that seems interesting. And it, it also somewhat callback to the last episode of the original series. You know, the, the original intent in the script was that Cooper was going to essentially, you know, have to stop um, Wendy Merle. And, you know, there was a conflict between these two characters. Well, Lynch wasn't interested in that. Lynch isn't interested in that external conflict. You know, there's a bad guy out to get me. He's interested in why I can't move forward, uh, why I can't take action. What's inside me that's stopping me? What is my internal conflict? And he restructures that last episode to, to get more at Cooper's failings or Cooper's flaws than, you know, Cooper having to combat or be in conflict with something outside of himself and so in that part 17 you get you get some elements of that you have a scene where it's not cooper it's it's uh freddie with his green glove and he punches bob and you get sort of that sort of superficial satisfaction of bob got you know punched and now he's been defeated and we got that that stereotypical ending in a very non-stereotypical way and then you have cooper come in and ignore it completely, mm. essentially. They are observing that he doesn't take any action. And then uh, when Mr. C is laying dead on the, on the, on the ground, I, I thought this was really important to, to, to reference and to talk about to some extent, is that Cooper never takes any responsibility for his evil half's uh, actions. And those, that evil half is part of him, um, unbalanced and unchecked and, and, and you know, how do we how do we deal with the fact that we might have some of those impulses inside us, and um, and so but Cooper does he doesn't even even not that it was necessarily his place to apologize but in some way acknowledge some culpability um, he doesn't and I think that's a flaw in him there I think that he would prefer to look to the rest of the uh, assembled characters as a superhero who will save the day and not in any way is responsible for the, the conditions that they're, they're dealing with now. And so I think that that's an important part of that story there. And I think it speaks to some of the issues that Cooper is dealing with and some of the problems that he has to overcome. Um, so anyway, more could be said about that. Um, I tried to get at it a little bit, but I probably didn't get at it to the extent it, it requires in the book. I was I was sometimes wondering, reading the book, is there any chance John would record a commentary for the series that we could... <laughs> <laughs> there are so many little moments. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to even think of that, but uh, David Lynch would not want that. No. He, would, he would not want that at all. Um, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but the uh, original... The first season was released to DVD back in 2001, I think that was for the first time. And there was audio commentaries on uh, the, the uh, they didn't have the pilot, but there was audio commentaries on the seven hour long first season episodes. Those have never been, those have never made it, you know, transported over into subsequent home video releases because Lynch does not want audio commentaries on anything. And uh, yeah, so- I can imagine that. Who, who no. even who uh, did the audio commentaries? So, uh, there was a number of great comments. Uh, I think Tim Hunter does one. Harley Payton's on one. Leslie Lincoln Gladder's on one. 
Um, I, I have to go and look, and I'm sure I have it right handy. But um, I mean, I offered to, to do Craig Mailer, who is my partner when we were doing Wrapped in Plastic, we both offered uh, to, to do an audio commentary if they wanted. They already had people who were more closely associated with the show. And, and, and so we weren't, you know, we were in the running for that, but, but um, those are fascinating. If you ever get your hands on them and they're invaluable in many ways, uh, but they only exist on that one particular home video release. And, and Lynch, I don't think Lynch was very happy about it at yeah, all. So. Mixed it after that. Now I'm not, <laughs> not surprised knowing what I, yeah. This is a random curveball of a question, but have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon yet? I have not seen it. I did read the book. When it first okay. came out, so I'm a, I'm a fan of David Grant, the author. Uh, his nonfiction, I think, is is great. Um, so I read the book, so I'm familiar with the story. Um, I haven't been able to carve out three and a half hours to get to the, to the movies. Have you seen it? I saw it the other night, yeah. I, it, I thought it was excellent. And the, the reason I bring it up is it's the second big movie of the year where I, there's a strong uh, Twin Peaks sort of aspect. Oh. There, okay. Um, I don't want to spoil anything for Killers of the Flower Moon, but the other the other movie I thought was pr more obviously Oppenheimer, which obviously restages the Trinity test and important for me to see because I had the opportunity to see it here in Dallas uh, on one of the I think twenty or thirty screens in the country that had it, the big seventy millimeter IMAX, and and that was really really worth you know worth going to. I, I, I'm happy I did that. Yeah. Do, what do you? Do, we're veering a little bit away from from, sure. from Twin Peaks here, but what do you make of the? Um, I, I I read another book that was about. I always forget his name, but he's in um, uh, Twin Peaks: The Final Dossier. He's a real person. He's the Rocketeer, Jack. Parsons. Oh, uh, Jack Parsons. Jack uh -huh. Parsons. Yeah. His story, Oppenheimer's story. They are so suffused with Twin Peaks stuff. It's it's as particularly Jack Parsons with his w losing an arm, uh, the Alistair mm -hmm. Crowley mysticism, the occult, the rocketry, then the Trinity test with Oppenheimer and the Bhagavad Gita, and you know, after a while, you're just scratching your head, going, "What's what's going on here?" <laughs> yeah, and 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 that I mean that I think we can really uh, attribute to Fro Frost. That's not Mark Frost. They, obviously, it's from his book, uh, the Jack Parsons stuff. He did a lot of research into that. I think uh, Frost has been interested in in all of all of that occult, and you know, he brought some of that into the original series too. He studied the the Theosophy and the Madame Blavatsky, and then all of those uh, spiritualists from the late nineteenth century, and he incorporated some of those. I guess where the Black and White Lodges comes from, and so. Um, I think that's a frost thing. Um, I, I don't know a lot about it. I mean, I, I, I know about Oppenheimer. I've read, I read, in fact, I had read the American Prometheus biography of him before I'd seen the film. Uh, and I, and I've read a lot about some of those physicists who came together and, and, and put the bomb together and, and the work that they did in the, in the thirties leading up to it. Um, but I don't, I don't know a lot. When it comes to the mysticism stuff, it's interesting to me, but it's not really compelling to me. So I, I obviously I know some something about it because it's connected to Twin Peaks. So I have to kind of research it, but I haven't really followed through on it a lot. Yeah, I, I was just wondering whether it was, you know, planned out from the, because as, as we've said, the, the Trinity scene in part eight of The Return changes everything and surprised everybody. Um, 
but from some of the stuff that's in the real story, the real factual story of Parsons and Oppenheimer, it, it feels like it's, you know, Twin Peaks law from season one and season two before you even get to the Trinity test. So uh, I was just boggling myself over like, what came for, what was the horse and the cart here? What, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and I've heard, you know, both Frost and Lynch are, I think, um, roughly the same age. I'm not sure what the difference is, but I know they both sort of came of age in the 50s, in the 1950s. And I think, uh, you know, Lynch has talked about the 1950s being, you know, sort of the ultimate decade, the best decade ever. Well, that's because those were his formative years and his memories are, you know, so, so um, clear to him. Um, but. Uh, and I was not alive in the 50s, so I don't know what, but I assume uh, that there was that sort of pervasive sense of this, the bomb and what it might mean and and in in the air all the time. And I think for both Lynch and Frost, it, it's it's part of, you know, how they were formed, their minds formed. They, they, they sort of, uh, you know, their, their minds were opening at a time when this sort of nuclear fear was so pervasive. It's not surprising to me that they incorporated it in to sort of this magnum opus of their, you know, both their careers. I think both of them. Um, I don't think we can say, you know, this was a Lynch idea or a Frost idea. I think they both came to this idea that we need to address you know, the advent of nuclear technology and nuclear weaponry in the world. And we put it in Twin Peaks. So, and then of course, Frost, you know, he has, he has more interest in some of those bizarre, um, you know, in, you know, connections with someone like Parsons and some of the weird stuff that was happening, yeah. uh, you know, around that time. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you're right. It's it is kind of when you've introduced the idea of the evil that men do. It's it's almost inevitable that it's going to find its apogee with the bomb. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend of mine say, you know, uh, what was so you know that explosion? If we just look at it in terms of the release of energy, you know, why that? Why would that release bomb? Because the the Tunguska event, for example, when that uh, meteor or potentially a comet came in, and and I don't know if you're familiar with it, when it, it landed in Siberia, and and this was in like 1908, I think, and created this incredible explosion in in the you know the remote remote part of Siberia. People around the world actually you know d detected this. Well, the amount of energy that was released from this natural occurrence was far greater than the energy that was released in the Trinity test. So why wouldn't Bob come out if it's just an energy release thing? Well, it's not. It's it's about the evil that men do. Men do. The film speaks to that idea of what evil have we potentially loosed in the world by you know, by creating this weapon. And so that's why it's Bob. I mean, that's why it's the Trinity test. That's what they're getting at there. Arguably the beginning uh, or the culmination of the dark age. Yeah. If it was a meteorite, then, you know, Bob would be in some kind of indirect way, an alien and not a reflection of. Not a reflection of humanity or that, that, you know, again, the evil that men do. The evil so men, uh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, John, thank you. So I've got to the end of my questions there. Um, maybe hey. just, just to finish up, can, um, can you let uh, people know where, where's the best place to get the book? 
Oh, well, the best place to get the book is on Amazon. Uh, I know some people don't like Amazon, but uh, if you go to Amazon, you can buy uh, an, an ebook version of it and a, um, a paperback version of it. And there's even a hardcover version of it. I always tell people, you don't need to get the hardcover. I just did that for Vanity Shake. <laughs> it's the same exact book, but it's more expensive. So just get the paperback if you want a physical copy. Uh, it's available on Amazon, but if you wanted to order it uh, through a local bookstore, they can get that get it for you. It'll take a little longer, but they can certainly get it. And you just go in and and um, and tell them the title and and the author, and and people can people can get it. So um, Christmas is coming. It's the perfect gift. It is, yeah. <laughs> And if uh, if they've already read Ominous Woosh, then I then they should check out the Essential uh, Wrapped in Plastic as well as I I've been going through the the old the back issues just the 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 digital ones that you can get on Amazon and they they're fantastic with some absolute gold in there so yeah, yeah you know I dig through them too sometimes and I've realized wow I you know forgot all about that uh, yeah Wrapped in Plastic uh, there is some good material in there. There's a lot of essays in Wrapped in Plastic that I will never be able to reprint because I didn't write them. Uh, we had a lot of people contribute interesting theses and essays about uh, Twin Peaks, and you know they're worth looking at. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on. It's been great to talk to you. Yes, no, I appreciate it very much. Uh, this was a lot of fun.